Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and forgave, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, I let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from my trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Ty. Um, if you guys would, please join me in uh, one last prayer, and we will get started. Father, um, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity for us to gather. Um, I thank you for uh, worship. I thank you for awesome songs we get to sing along to. I thank you for your word and the things that we get to talk about, and I just pray that you would prepare each of our hearts for this message, that you would really uplift us around this idea of what it means to confess, and uh, that we would be able to step into that healthy rhythm in a way that draws us closer to you, and that you would continue to protect us from our fears that often involve things like guilt and shame, and uh, just that you would protect us from that, Lord. pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Now, so as we, as we kind of prefaced earlier, we've been going through this series called Things Christians Do. We have talked about a number of things for the, over the past couple of months, including prayer, including reading the Bible. We just did a kind of fun two-piece on a work followed by rest. And we're going to do another two-piece now, where today we're going to talk about confession. And then next week, we're actually going to have Rod Hugan, who is about eight inches taller than me, very old, awesome Dutch dude who's going to be leading our, uh, our sermon next week on repentance. So we're going to have a cool, like, little one-two punch of confession and repentance. Now, obviously I'm speaking to a few dozen people right now. I can't imagine that all of us have the same perspective when it comes to one idea, but I feel like the idea of confession is kind of challenging. I feel like when we think of confession, it kind of feels like when you like scold a child and you're like, say sorry, say sorry for that thing that you did. And the kid's like, ah, and he's crying and stuff like that. Like it feels uncomfortable. Or even you think like confession in a legal context, like confess of your crime and now you can go to prison. It's like, yeah, geez. Like confession is inseparable from things like guilt 
and sin. It implies that something wrong has been done. It implies that there was some good order that was broken, and we are supposed to do that, and that feels lame. There's a story that often plays in my mind from, ah, oh, geez, probably 10 years ago at this point. I, uh, I was involved with a ministry back when I was in, in college, and I was part of a, of a ministry team, which wasn't like, you know, none of us had been in like training or anything like that. It was really just dudes in a small group who were leading Bible studies with a couple of other people. And there was like this leadership meeting where one of our leaders sat down with us and said, you know, I need to share something with the group. And so obviously everyone's kind of on pins and needles. And they say, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago when I was, I've been feeling really depressed lately. And so a couple of weeks ago, I went out on the town and I got really, really drunk. And I just needed to share that because I've been told by our leaders that, like, that I need to take some time to step away and kind of reassess things. And I remember there were two distinct feelings I had whenever I think of this memory. The first was, I don't remember much from this person's story, but I remember the silence after he finished sharing. Just the awkward, absolute void of speaking that just followed. It was just the loudest silence I remember. And the second was I had this overwhelming feeling in me come up that said, I never want to have to do something like I just saw. This felt like shame. It felt like vindictive, like coerced confession. It was just so weird and uncomfortable. And I just remember feeling like this is the plague. I'd never want to touch this for as long as I'm in ministry. The interesting thing about this passage, about this psalm that we're kind of centering our message on today from Psalm 32, is it's not a bummer. It's not talking about, yeah, yeah, you guys got to confess and it kind of stinks, but you know, it's like, it'll be fine, I guess. Like, this is like a celebration. The author of this psalm is like, like you, I, I, I was feeling awful. And then I confessed my sins to God, and he forgave me, and he's delighting over me, and now I feel this tremendous joy and delight in my heart, and it's great. But often, I, I mean, I, 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 like I said, I can't speak for the dozens of people here today, but I feel like often when we think of this idea of confession— we're not drawn to think, I want to confess because I want the, the, the beautiful, cathartic experience of God's love and care over me. We often think, confession sounds really exposing. Confession sounds like I'm opening myself up to be hurt, whether it's by others, whether it's by my vision of myself, or whether it's by just shame, like just attacks of shame on a demonic level. So the question I want to try to answer for us today is if this passage is true, if things like 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. If these things are true, then where is the joy in confession? How can we tap into that as believers in Jesus? So first, I want to do what I've kind of done for a lot of these sermons, which is I want to, I want to take some time to define our terms a little bit. I want to give us some, some definitions to work with. So firstly, we know that confession is kind of connected with sin. And so let's take a moment to define what sin is. Because I'm sure there are still some who kind of fall into this idea of, well, well, sin is doing the things that God says we're not supposed to do. Sin is a, a list of don'ts uh, contrasted with God's other list of do's. Uh, and it's a lot more, that's, that's not true. It's more to it than that. So sin is best defined as this idea that things are not the way they should be. This is not an original idea of mine. If you want a really good book recommendation, I can give it to you. Um, so, sin is something that disrupts an objective state of order that is good. For example, let's take uh, a judge in society, right? Now, a judge on paper is supposed to be somebody who uh, looks at legal disputes between two different parties and is able to weigh in fairly on what is supposed to happen. A judge is literally someone who brings justice, and that is good. On the flip side, if a judge we found out was taking bribes from wealthy parties who were paying them loads and loads of money so that they would uh, now use their influence with partiality, that is not the way things should be. Police officers, on paper, these are men and women who put, our, put, their, put their lives often in, uh, in harm's way so that they can protect and serve, so they can look out for the good of our community. That's a good thing. However, a police officer who is hot-tempered, aggressive, impulsive, driven by prejudices and negative stereotypes of the people that he's supposed to be protecting and serving, that is not the way things should be. So we can see there is a way that represents order and goodness, and then there is a way in which that becomes bad, the way it is not the way it should be. The thing is, though, sin doesn't just exist in this large scale of society that we see around us. In fact, the more we sit within ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings and our motivations, the more we realize that this phrase, this is not the way it should be, is actually written all over ourselves and our hearts and the way that we make decisions, and the things that we want, and the ways that we go about getting the things that we want, we are not the way that we should be. You know, recognizing things like, I, I, should, work, I should work hard at my job. I should. But I've been slighted, and I'm irritated about the place that I'm in, and I am doing a worse job, which is making more work for other people around me, and that's not fair. That's not the way things should be. I should love people better, 
But there are people that bother me and irritate me. And if I'm honest, I talk about people in ways that is really unflattering and unkind. And this is not the way things should be. And, you know, I'm going through a really hard time in my life. And, and as a Christian, I believe that God is with me through these lousy, lousy times. But honestly, I also kind of act out in ways that I know that I shouldn't. Because deep down, I kind of feel entitled to the things that I don't have. This is not the way things should be. Now, this is even more challenging when we consider that God created the universe and the harmony that we've kind of disrupted. Like the God who created everything, the God who loves us even in our broken, not the way it should be state, God is good. God is actually everything that sin isn't. God is holy and clean and righteous. God is creative and, and structured. He's kind. He's merciful. He's just and he's self-giving. He's the, he is the way that the world should be. And yet our world is opposed to him. So if we look at sin through that definition, none of us should struggle with the idea that, yes, I am guilty of sin. We may not be murderers. In fact, I, I hope there are as few murderers in this room as possible. But there are still ways in which this thing that is not the way it should be is affecting us and affecting those around us as well. So with that in mind, let's define this idea of confession as communicating our flaws, failures, and shortcomings, and recognizing our deep need for grace. Communicating our flaws, our failures, and our shortcomings, and recognizing our deep need for grace. Now, a lot of us would stop the definition of confession at just communicating wrong. You just say you did something wrong, and that's where it ends. And I actually don't think that is what a Christian view of confession has to look like. Like, we all know the story of the, of the prodigal son, this guy who... Uh, has this very, very wealthy father who has this amazing inheritance planned and this young dude decides, actually, no, I'm gonna take my inheritance today and I'm gonna spend it all like worthlessly and then I'm gonna find myself desperately in need and need to go back to my father. Imagine that story ended right when he showed back up to his dad and said, dad, I've sinned, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, the end. It's not a very restorative story. There's not a lot of hope there. Confession isn't just recognizing that we've done something wrong. It's recognizing that we've done something wrong and we need grace. We need kindness from God. And so confession finds itself when we look through the Bible all over the place. We see confession in the law that God gives to his people, the people of Israel, in the first chunk of the Old Testament. He says to, for, to, to confess their sins so they might be forgiven. There are entire systems of religious worship, which are too involved to get into right now, that are all about this idea of confessing sin to God and then God having ways to forgive these sins for them. The prophets, like these people that God would give messages to to communicate with the rest of his people, 
oftentimes the prophets are confessing on behalf of the whole country. They're like, God, I, we have all sinned against you. Please have mercy on all of us. And so confession kind of finds its way into this rhythm of not just confessing our sins once and for all and saying, God, I'm a sinner. Please show me, cut me some slack. But God's actually inviting us to continue to confess repeatedly, often, regular. We don't exactly know how often we should, but we do know that God is encouraging a rhythm of confession. So now that we've discussed what confession is, we've discussed why we should confess, the question that we started with is still there. Psalm 32 says that confession is joyful. How do we extract joy from something that sounds really shame-inducing? I've got two points, and I've, I've really got them this time. <laughs> but you know what? We'll see. I don't want to bind myself to anything. We might have zero points. We might, close, we might stop preaching right now. Um, here's my first point. A rhythm of confession allows us to touch the pain of our shortcomings. A rhythm of confession allows us to touch the pain of our shortcomings. Now, there's a story that's familiar to many of us, but we're still going to go through it. It's the story of King David David was a very, very highly respected leader in the kingdom of Israel. He was himself a king. He was called the man after God's own heart. He penned most of the Psalms that we, uh, that we find in the Bible. And he was the king of Israel during a time when Israel was extremely affluent. They were wealthy. They were, they were having healthy relationships with the uh, other nations around them. King David was like the man. He's the boss. Now, David's lowest point in his life, again, a story that many of us know, David found himself scoping out some lady who was bathing naked. He uh, had her sent for and, you know, propositioned a, uh, a night together. And, uh, and as a result, she became pregnant. And so David's freaking out. He's like, shoot, well, this lady got pregnant while her husband, a guy who David definitely knew and probably had a personal relationship with, was out at war. People are going to talk if she just ends up being pregnant all of a sudden. So David, after trying a couple different plans, decides, you know what? I'm going to send her husband, a guy who I know, one of my top soldiers, I'm going to send him off to the front lines of battle and hope, hope, hope that he dies there so that I can remarry his wife and then no one's going to freak out when they see her get pregnant. And that's what he does. So he commits adultery. He literally takes a woman who has no opportunity to actually consent to sexual relationship. And then out of fear, he covers it up and her husband is killed as a result. Now, this was not something that he did and then the night after her husband died was like, ah, oh, shoot, I, I really think I probably shouldn't have done that. Like, we get the impression it was maybe months until David rec really recognized that he had done something wrong, which means that there was just a time when he was just going along with his day. 
He had slept with some girl, gotten her pregnant, killed her husband, married her, uh, you know, secretly. And he was just doing king stuff, probably writing some more songs, playing his little, I don't know, tiny guitar, just having a good, having a good old David time. Until this famous moment where a prophet by the name of Nathan shows up to David. And here's what he says. This is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Now, here's the thing. David knew better. David was a guy who wrote the longest chapter in the Bible about how much he loved the law of God. David had zero excuses for what he did. He knew what he had done immediately. And yet, he kind of went on with his day, didn't let himself feel the weight of the thing that he had done and just kind of left it untouched. And God, in a great act of love, sent Nathan to say, listen, you've got to touch this thing, man. Like, you've got this, like, knife in your gut that you put there and you're pretending like it's not there. And you need to take the time to feel the actual weight of what you've done. Because what you did was awful, man. And David needed to rest in that. David actually needed to kind of wrestle with the weight of, oh shoot, I did something painful. When Nathan shows up, David no longer has any choice but to see and to experience the weight of what he'd done. You know, Psalm 32, which we read, said, uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When we keep silent and when we refuse to, to confess the things that are building up in our hearts, this like uncomfortable pressure that builds, it just, it, it harms us. It's painful for us. But when Nathan showed up, David had no choice but to address it. He had to recognize that he had done something awful. He needed to recognize that his relationship with this woman would always exist under the shadow of the way that he took her without her consent 
and the way that he killed her husband, completely victimizing her. He needed to touch the pain of his shortcomings. Not because it was easy, not because it was pleasant, but it was a necessary reminder of just the brokenness that we do carry in our lives. It was a necessary reminder that the the ways in which we are broken does not create victimless crimes. The ways in which we seek to protect ourselves, to serve ourselves, to cover the sins that we commit, which is exactly what David was doing, these aren't victimless crimes. They, They bring harm and hurt to the people around us, especially those closest to us. They grieve the heart of God who cares deeply for us, and they, and they hurt ourselves. The things that we do in these ways, they're not victimless. The beauty of feeling the pain and the, and the hurt of our shortcomings is it also pushes us towards repentance. Once David finally had a grasp of the thing that he had done, he was finally able to say, I, I need to walk this difficult path of reconciliation. Be it with God, be it with my wife, be it with my nation that I've just sinned against by being a flawed, deeply flawed leader. Just like the literal physical response to pain, our, our bodies are teaching us not to do things that are causing harm to them which is why pain receptors go crazy when we you know, stick our hand on a hot iron. There's an action that, 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 will be, that will be propelled in us when we, when we touch that wound. Now, the question you might rightfully be asking is, John, you're, you're preaching a gospel of shame right now. What you're saying is literally what your buddy experienced when you were in college. This is just painful, brutal confession. This is not actually going to be healing. This is why I wrote a second point. And it's this. A rhythm of confession allows us to experience the beautiful promises of God. Now, if you guys were here last week, when we talked about rest, what we ultimately kind of landed on was the heart of rest as believers is to be able to recognize the things that God has promised us and to meditate and believe in those things and to allow them to give us comfort and to make us legitimately just feel better. Now, confession is difficult because sin is lousy and sin is destructive. And unfortunately, ignoring it often leads to our own soul's decay and for the destruction of the things that it's going to affect, which could be relationships, which could be life habits, which could be all different kinds of things. But it is essential that beyond recognizing the pain of confession, we recognize the restoring love that is in confession as well. And that's why this psalm exists. 
That's why this psalm is saying not, I confess to you and my bones have broken. I confess to you and my body splits in two. He's saying, no, I, I confess to you and you showed me love and care. I confess to you and you didn't dash me against the rocks. I confessed all of the worst things about me and you didn't throw me away. But you're committing yourself to me. You continue to commit yourself to me. The promises of God that are so beautiful and that are so anchoring and necessary for us in the process of confession are, are, are several. It's the promise of forgiveness. I mean, I, like, like people love to use like legal analogies when it comes to how God looks at us differently. But the problem is legal analogies don't work because they don't happen. If you kill somebody, you go to prison. No one can offer to go to prison for you. No judge would approve that. Like this is a flawed analogy, but what the gospel is, is actually that, that although you've done something that warrants a very just and fair response, you will be spared and restored and made good again. Like, I don't know how often we really reflect on the fact that we are walking around as living, breathing human beings touched by the holiness of God. Like, we are holy. I can't fathom that. Not because we checked the right boxes or we did the right things, but literally because Jesus fulfilled a life of perfection. That Jesus, who was God, descended into a state of fragile humanity and did everything that humans were made to do and then suffered for no reason other than to love and restore the people who couldn't save themselves. And as a result, we don't have a blemish or a spot or a mark on us. We're clean. And I don't get that. But it's enough for the dude who wrote Psalm 32 to lose his mind. We have the promise of hope for our, for our failures. Like what I love is like, it, like the gospel isn't just like, John, I'm sorry that you did something lousy, but you know, uh, don't worry about it. I forgive you. It's also a love that says, hey, uh, you're, you're, you're struggling with this. Like, let, let me be present with you in the midst of that. Let me walk with you through this struggle that you have. Let me walk and heal you day by day until the day comes when I just pull off all the thorns once and for all and we're just good. Like, the grace of God isn't just this beautiful promise for the future. It's actually walking with us today. Everlasting life is not something that you earn when you die and they put you in the ground. Everlasting life is something that we're experiencing at this moment. Or how about this? The, the promise that our evil deeds have not caused damage beyond what the love of God can restore. That's, that's pretty great. David died thinking, I've brought shame to my nation of Israel. I've brought harm to my children. I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a good husband. But there's not a sin that I committed that could not be erased and restored by the love of God. God will lift up my broken children. 
God will heal my neglected wives. God will bring up the people of Israel, his people through faith, and he will do everything that he's always promised to do. These are promises that are valuable. And these are promises that will kill shame. And that is beautiful because shame might be the killer of Christians at the highest rate than anything else I've seen. Shame will will rip you into pieces. It will. And that's why we have to we have to transition from point one to point two, right? Shame will uh shame's a destroyer. Because the, the the bummer about shame is that when we hear the voice of shame, it sounds so close to God, right? Shame is like, well, you did something wrong. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like I did. I did do that wrong thing. That's right. And shame is like, yeah, you, uh, you're really not too sharp, are you? And I'm like, shame, you made another, another good point there. That sounds like something God would probably say. And shame's like, you know, you, uh, I don't think you'll ever do anything right. I don't, I don't think that you're worthy of love or care or consideration. And I'm like, you know, that sounds a little harsh, but that could still be God speaking, you know? And eventually, I think the people who have walked away from the faith in the midst of shame, they just think that God is someone who will split them in half rather than love them and care for them and restore them to what we hope we would be restored to. And uh, once, once, once you've confused the voice of shame and the voice of God, it, it takes a pretty serious surgery to, to heal that. It's possible, but it's, it's hard. So caution that for you guys. I do. If we want to experience the joy of confession, we have to be willing to take a step into what could be very tedious discomfort. We will have to take a step into fear. Now, when I told the story about, uh, I told the story about earlier When I told the story about earlier, I said two things. I hated the silence and the discomfort of that conversation, and I said, I hope I never have to do that myself. Well, this is a sermon about confession, so let me lead the way here. Um, I have personally struggled with the sin of pornography since I was about... 18. And when I was 18, I was a Christian. And my view of God at that point was about as dictator, fearful, judgmental father as it could ever be. So you could imagine that like having fallen into a habit that is very culturally frowned upon, but also just like, oh, this isn't good. This is, this doesn't make me feel good. And then also thinking, oh, so I'm doing this terrible thing. I'm calling myself a Christian, and I think God hates me for this, right? Maybe? And, like, I just immediately had this fear of, like, I, if I really expose myself for this evil thing that I do, God is going gonna, is gonna to pull a lever, and a trap door is going to open beneath my feet, and I'm going to fall into a pile of burning tires, 
And I believed that for a long time, longer than I should have. And that's been a, a, a back and forth struggle for me. And then 2020 hit. And if you guys remember, and I'm sure everybody does, 2020 was an extraordinarily isolating time. It was very lonely. And I think everyone experienced that, but I think that if you're a single person living by yourself at this time, you felt it. And I felt it. And suddenly, uh, it was like my, my pornography used to becoming a problem. And I was speaking to a buddy of mine and uh, another, another pastor friend, and I said, you know what, dude, I... I, I opened up to him about how I was feeling, and I said, dude, I, uh, I said, you know, if you ever get, because at this point, I, uh, I wasn't a pastor, I wasn't, I wasn't full on, I was still just an intern here at Mission, and I told my buddy, I said, you know, if you ever feel like this is something that I should talk to my elders about, you just let me know, and he said, dude, I don't think that's a decision I should be making for you. And suddenly this like whirlwind hit me of just like absolute terror and fear. Like I was like, if I talk to the elders of this church about this sin that I've been struggling with for a long time, they are going to pull the lever and the trap door is going to come out and I'm going to fall into a pile of burning tires. Like that is my, that is my destiny. And I was mortified. And I remember as vividly as I remember many things, I came to the church it was probably like four in the afternoon. And I paced. And I paced for hours. And I'm just talking out loud. And I'm like, God, you know where I'm at with this. We've had a number of conversations. This is not something I've entirely hidden, but also not something I've entirely been honest and straightforward about. But I said, God, I, you know what I'm afraid of. And I... I don't want to do this. I really don't. And I'm pacing, and I'm talking, and I'm thinking, and I, I just feel so uncomfortable in my skin. It's like I'm wearing a jacket made of thumbtacks. I just feel so antsy. And I remember this feeling came over me that said, John, you're going to do this, and it's going to be good. It just felt so calming. Just this little voice. John, you're going to do this. It's going to be fine. There's no trap door. There's no lever. There's no burning tires. You'll be okay. And I said out loud, okay, I'll do it. And I remember the equivalent of 50 anvils that had, for the better part of 10 years, been sitting comfortably in the space between my shoulders just sprout wings and leave. And I felt what, what this dude felt. I felt the relief of love and care. And so a few days passed, and uh, we had an elders meeting, and I said, guys, I got to share something. And I said, I've been struggling with this. I, I don't want to carry this with me into, into my marriage, into my life, into, into ministry. Like, I just, I'm submitting this to you, and I just, uh, I just want you to know. And nobody pulled a lever. No trap doors fell. No burning tires. I got a response of, John, we love you. John, we care for you. John, if we can support you in any way, please let us know. If, uh, if there's something that we can just walk with you in. And they, and they said something that I needed to hear really badly, which was, John, 
I understand how bad this sin is and I want you to keep working on it, but I also want you to remember that the shame is a killer too. And they reminded me that, yeah, porn sucks, but you know, thinking that God doesn't love you also sucks a lot too. And they said words that have been kind of tattooed on my heart for a long time. So shout out, shout out, appreciate it. Um, Andy, wherever you are, love you, bro. And uh, I'm still here, you know? But, and honestly, like, this is the foundation that forgiveness and confession is built upon. It is feeling that pain and discomfort of recognizing that I am not a, perp a perpetrator of victimless crimes. I am victimizing myself, I am victimizing my loved ones, and I am victimizing Jesus on a cross who has suffered for me when I sin and do so nonchalantly. And you need to feel that. But before you feel it so long that you get a hook sunk in your chest that makes you feel like you're made of garbage, we have to remember that the love of God is a thousand times greater than our greatest sin. And we need to remember that for ourselves. And also, we need to remember that when it comes to confessing our sins to others. Because when people bring their sins to you and they say, Joey, I've been struggling, man. Like, take it as a command from God himself that you not let a wounded person walk away from you without reminding them of the good news that Jesus loves us and is walking with us still. Please. I, dude, I did the accountability thing for a thousand years, bro, and it just like, just a million ways to learn how God doesn't love you. It's not, it's not the wave. It's not. Don't, don't, don't let a wounded person walk away from you with a knife in their stomach. Remind them to turn to God. Remind them that the kindness of God is still there. So when it comes to confession, we want to numb the pain, but we need to actually feel it. And when we feel it, we'll let the healer come to us. I don't often assign homework at the end of my sermons, but I will do so today. I would like to instruct everyone who can hear my voice at some point in the next week to go to YouTube and to type in Sister Act 2, Oh Happy Day. And it's about a three-minute long video. Quality's not great. It's probably from like 12 years ago. And I want you to watch it twice. The first time you watch it, I want you to watch it and just be like, wow, this is freaking great. Like the 90s was such a fun time for movies. Whoopi Goldberg is a nun. This is crazy. Like I think for three minutes you should just be like, oh, this is so cool. And then I want you to watch it again because there's so much joy, so much joy in that song. And I want you to listen to the words because they're simple and because they're true. Because the words of that song are, oh, happy day, oh, happy day that Jesus washed my sins away. <clears throat> it's good stuff. Do your homework, Mission Church. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for everything. 
Thank you that you are kind to us. Thank you that you show us a love that we don't deserve. Thank you that you are walking with us in our weakness and you are giving us strength. Give us good people and good voices and, I don't know, good books and good YouTube videos to watch to give us strength too. Um, yeah, God, as we step into this, I mean, I, I lived a long time, Father, where I knew how to touch the pain of my sin, but I didn't know how to apply the antidote. And I pray that no one leaves this room having learned how to feel sin without learning how to feel forgiveness too. So uh, yeah, please just let that be the case, Lord. And I uh, pray this in Jesus' name, amen.